And with that, let's go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be uh, doing some, some background work today and only covering a few verses, but I'm going to read the entirety of the section we're in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 says this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Father, we pray your word would minister to us, help me to be clear, and we pray your spirit would work in our hearts to produce the changes that will honor you, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Those of you who came in this morning from the main parking lot, saw the cones out and the holes that are being refilled there, uh, we had some plumbing issues this week. On Tuesday night and then on Wednesday morning, we noticed that the water pressure had dramatically dropped, and so Mike was here, Mike went outside and very quickly figured out that we had a leak in the main line coming from uh, the city, which meant someone's going to have to go find it and dig it out and repair it. So we eventually got a plumbing crew here, and it seemed like the leak had been going on long enough so that the water was eroding the dirt, and so what we found was the beginning of a sinkhole underneath where the leak was. If you've ever seen sinkholes on TV, like in the news, and the intersection, you know, just collapse sinkholes can be pretty scary because it's eroding the surface underneath. Everything looks fine, but then one day it just gives way. So in our case, that would have meant, you know, some unsuspecting person parks their car, and then when they come out, it's at the bottom of a little lake. It's a scary thought, you know, because nothing looks like anything is wrong, and then suddenly disaster strikes. Along those same lines, last, a couple weeks ago, I saw that a parking structure in New York City had collapsed. The top level gave way. Cars ended up piled on top of each other because of the weight. It seemed cars are getting heavier. Buildings are getting older. Thankfully, most of those cars were empty, so people just leave their cars for the day. They go off to work, and they expected to come back and find their car. One person died. Five persons were injured in a tragedy that could have been much worse. But the same idea, everything looks fine, and then disaster comes. 
that is the idea behind the passage we're looking at today in 1 Thessalonians 5. We ended chapter 4 on on the positive side. Uh, It's a focus on the blessing that awaits Christians when Christ comes to move the earth into its final phase of history. Those who have received the grace of Christ, whether they're living or dead, Paul says, they're going to be glorified. They're going to be transformed. They get new bodies. But chapter 5 shifts the focus now away from the redeemed and more to the rebels, at least in in terms of uh, the tone. He's going to address us as well. But what is it that awaits those who've rejected Christ and his word? The simple answer to that is the day of the Lord. That's that's the topic of this section, the day of the Lord. You might have a title above chapter 5 in your translation. And that may be a phrase you've heard before, the day of the Lord. It's, it's a little different from what we refer to as the Lord's day, which means Sunday. This is the day of the Lord. And in thinking about this topic, I'm going to organize our time today around the answer to three questions related to that topic. We'll spend most of our time doing some background work on the first question, which is what is the day of the Lord? Secondly, we'll look at the question, when is the day of the Lord? And then thirdly, the question is, how should you respond to the day of the Lord? So what is it, when is it, and how should I respond? The what is it, needs, needs, it requires us to do some background work. What is the day of the Lord? I'll give you the general answer up front, then we'll go look at it in the scriptures. In the most general sense, the day of the Lord is a phrase that refers to a time of judgment. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day or a time when the Lord visibly and directly punishes the evil of man. We have stories in the Bible of God punishing sin. So Acts 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira. They lied. They were struck dead that day. We also have Acts 12. Herod speaks out. He doesn't give God the glory. He dies that day. I don't know if it's that day, but he's struck by an angel and he dies. The worms eat him. Those are examples of God's righteous discipline or punishment upon sinners. You, you see something similar in 1 Corinthians 11. It speaks of those in the church who were sick and those who had died because of their unrepentant heart. Those are all examples of personal discipline, but that's not the day of the Lord. You also have a passage like Romans 1 that tells us that God's wrath is expressed on the world when he gives a culture over to its sinful desires. Remember, they just, the downward spiral of a culture. That is a form of judgment, but that also is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a phrase that refers to a much broader expression of vengeance on the earth. It is connected to large-scale death and devastation. The phrase is used over 20 times. Five of them are in the New Testament. The rest, the majority, are in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, where you find the day of the Lord, most of the times you have Lord written in all caps in your translation. When Lord is written in all caps, that means that the Hebrew word behind that is Yahweh, the the name of God. But a lot of translators will translate it as Lord because when there was a Greek translation made of the Old Testament, instead of putting God's name in Yahweh, they wrote Lord, the word for Lord. It also helps maintain some continuity between the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and the day of the Lord in the New Testament. The day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, same thing. God will come one day to judge man. And and we've already seen expressions of it. Throughout human history, God has visibly demonstrated his wrath against a society and against sin. But all those previous examples of judgment are previews of a coming future judgment. 
There is coming a final season of God's wrath on the earth. That is the day of the Lord. The earliest and most notable example of God's vengeance in destroying the world would be Genesis chapter 6. God sent a global flood because violence, sin, filled the earth. He saved Noah, but everybody else died. Not long after that, you have the, the, the Genesis 18, Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom was so corrupt. Remember in Genesis 18, Abraham is discussing with God, and he says, if there are at least 10 people in the city, 10 righteous men, will you spare the city? And God said, yes. But the cities were destroyed. God rained fire from heaven. I mean, there were not even 10 righteous people in that city. The city was overrun with corruption and homosexuality. 400 years later, Israel is enslaved under the cruelty and the paganism and the pride of Egypt. And God raised up Moses and he sent plagues. The plagues were to demonstrate the power of God. They were to devastate and humble the land and they were to bring freedom to his people. Every Egyptian home from the poorest slave to the palace of Pharaoh was humbled in another remarkable demonstration of God's wrath. But Israel needed to know that God's judgment wasn't only reserved for Gentile nations. God promised them in the covenant, you have the end of Leviticus, end of Deuteronomy, Moses told them that if they as a nation continued in rebellion against God, they would be destroyed. Instead of being used as God's instrument of judgment on other nations, God would give Israel over to the other nations and they would be judged. And so after King David, you have King Solomon, in all his richness, they thought he would potentially be the Messiah. He falls, given over to sin. After him, the kingdom is split. You have the north and the south. The north is Israel, the south is Judah. Both nations fall further and further away from the word of God. And so during that time of the divided kingdom, God sent prophets. And the prophets are simply reminding the people of the covenant. Repent, turn back to God, otherwise destruction will come. Judgment will come. And that judgment came first in the north when Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And then about 150 years later, the south, Judah, is conquered by Babylon. And the city of Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon in 586 BC. The people were killed, the people were enslaved, and the people were scattered because God used pagan nations as instruments of his judgment upon them. Horrible things. You read in Jeremiah. Starvation, mothers eating their children because of the lack of food. Now, the judgment that God brought on Israel didn't mean that there was no more judgment left for the nations that attacked Israel because they also were wicked. They were pagan. The judgment is for everyone. And that's the idea behind the day of the Lord. Judgment is coming for the world. The day of the Lord is a major theme throughout the prophets. And so I want to, like I said, do some background work, kind of walk you through some of these passages. Hopefully you have your, your Bible ready. When we deal with these day of the Lord passages, we won't look at all of them, just a handful. But some of them, just so you know, look forward to the coming destruction of Israel. Some of them look forward to the coming destruction of nations. But beyond that, all of these passages help us understand and, and point us to the final future day of the Lord, which will come upon this world. God will judge every individual and every nation. If we take a more direct uh, interpretation of Daniel and Revelation, we know that that judgment will begin with their tribulation. 
The tribulation will continue to escalate. You have seven uh, seal judgments, seven trumpets, seven bowls. After the great tribulation, Christ comes. He's going to strike down the nations. He's going to initiate his millennial kingdom. He'll rule for a thousand years. But when that thousand years is over, there will be one more expression of judgment before, as Revelation calls it, the great white throne. So everyone who has rejected Christ will be cast into the lake of fire forever. So you've always got, even though there are phases, we've always had this expectation of coming judgment for the ungodly. That's what is contained in the idea of the day of the Lord. So let's start this little Bible study in the book of Isaiah, usually right near the middle of your Bible. If you hit Psalms, go forward. If you hit Jeremiah, go back. Isaiah chapter 13, and, and as we read it, I want you to not just understand the day of the Lord intellectually, but notice the, the, the imagery, notice the type of response God wants from his people. Isaiah chapter 13, starting in verse six. This is a message, it's given to the Israelites, but it's directed at Babylon. Babylon was going to be destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire. And the destruction of Babylon is a preview for us of the final destruction of Babylon, which Revelation describes as a global system set against Christ. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, says Revelation 18. Isaiah chapter 13, verse six. I'm gonna read all the way to verse 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. This is the day of the Lord. This will be a terrifying time and the Lord will bring it. Jump over one book to Jeremiah, chapter 46. Jeremiah chapter 46, here's a passage speaking now to Egypt. Egypt saw itself as a, as a global superpower. But Babylon was coming and they would humiliate her. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 10. It says, that day is the day of the Lord God of hosts. A day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead 
and take balm, O virgin daughters of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry, for warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. There's a similar prophecy in the next book, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 30. Another passage dealing with the day of the Lord and again aiming at Egypt. Even the greatest nation of the earth will not be exempt. This is at that time. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 2. It says, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas for the day, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a time, it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush when the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundations are torn down. It doesn't matter how glorious any city or any nation appears, it will be torn down when God comes in judgment. Jump forward to the book of Joel. So after Daniel, you have Hosea. After Hosea, you have Joel, a shorter book. We, we read it some time ago as we we're reading through the minor prophets. Joel is, in the Old Testament, the most concentrated has the most concentrated focus on the day of the Lord. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. It's mentioned, I think, five times in this little book. Look with me at Joel chapter one. Joel one, verse 15. Joel one fifteen says, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? So the culture laughs and celebrates, but all the joy, all the laughter of that age and of this age will be silenced. It will end. And the day of the Lord for the ungodly will be a day of lamentation and weeping. It's a day of despair because God himself has come for judgment. Joel chapter two continues, verse one. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. This was Israel watching as they were about to be invaded, but a picture of a much greater invasion to come. Let's skip down to verse 10, Joel 2, verse 10. There it says, the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. 
He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And that's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to be no one. Who will stand before the power of the Almighty? Again, the day of the Lord is a time of terror. Jump over to verse 30. Joel chapter 2, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And lastly, just to conclude this study for now, go to Obadiah. So Joel, Amos, Obadiah, just a couple books over. The shortest book of the Minor Prophets, only one chapter. Obadiah. Look at verse 15. Obadiah, verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. The vengeance is coming. Divine judgment is coming. You can go back now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As you do that, I want to point out to you that we're reading Zechariah right now on Sunday morning. Listen for that. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is not mentioned in Zechariah. But what you do see is the phrase, on that day. And so as we read in the next couple of weeks, you'll see that phrase repeatedly. On that day, Israel shall be saved, but judgment will come on those who rebel against the Lord. The day of the Lord is a coming day of judgment. It's already been foreshadowed in the flood and the destruction of Sodom and the destruction of Egypt and the destruction of Israel and the destruction of Babylon and Edom and many other nations. The day of the Lord is a reminder that God is holy and righteous and he will not let sin go unpunished. So the second question is, when is that gonna happen? When is the day of the Lord? Again, the answer, I'll give it to you up front, very simple, we don't know. That's the answer. We don't know. Jesus said, even in his, in his humiliation, he came, he said, that's for the Father. Even the Son of Man doesn't know. We don't know when Christ will move humanity into the next phase of history. I told you last week, I think the next event on God's calendar is the rapture. And we don't know when that's going to happen. It could happen at any moment. But once the rapture comes, once God has graciously removed his church his wrath will come upon the earth. That's the tribulation. That's, that's, that's part of the, the final phase of God's judgment on the earth. The tribulation is a judgment on Israel. It's a judgment on the nations. I mentioned to you last week that there are different views about the end times. Some people think that the rapture will come and then there will be final judgment soon after. So we're just expecting one big event. They aren't expecting some extended great tribulation. But... But I think even here in, in, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, there's another hint. There, there's more evidence that we should expect something prolonged. Look at verse 1. Paul is shifting gears a little bit. He says, now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
To me, that phrase, times, plural, seasons, plural, it gives the impression of, of phases, seasons. I don't think there's just one big event we're waiting for. The, the eschatological plan of God has multiple components, phases. And you might remember that the same phrase was used by Jesus back in Acts chapter 1. His disciples, they had been hearing about the kingdom for 40 days after the resurrection. And they say, Lord, now are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's the reason there's nothing that needs to be written to them. It's not for them to know. Paul had already taught them about the day of the Lord. And so there's nothing new that he needs to add to it. There's no new information. He says, you already know. That's verse two. For you yourselves are fully aware, you know perfectly, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. No one has any insider information about any of this. He will come like a thief in the night. That's an expression Jesus used in Matthew 24 on the Olivet Discourse. He was teaching about the end times. He wanted his disciples to be ready And that phrase, like a thief in the night, is intended to highlight the element of unexpectedness. When God moves this world into the next phase of his plan, the world will not be ready. In fact, that's going to happen, I think, every time God God shifts. The world is not going to be ready for the rapture. They're not going to be ready for Christ's return after the tribulation. We study, we read, we believe there's going to be a seven-year tribulation, but the world at that time is not going to know exactly when it's going to happen. There will be signs, but there's still something unknown about it. And I think the same is true for the millennial kingdom. The unbelievers alive during the millennial kingdom, they're not expecting final judgment to come. There's always an element of unexpectedness to the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment. Thieves don't announce when they're coming. That would defeat the purpose. I read a month ago a story in the Seattle area. A group of thieves broke open the front door of a coffee shop. And they headed directly to the bathroom. In the bathroom, they cut a hole in the wall. They said it was 18 by 24 inches. Unknown to the manager of the coffee shop, that hole now led to the back room of an Apple store. They stole iPhones, iPads, Apple Watches. Total worth of what they stole was estimated at $500,000. Nobody was expecting that to happen. And the thieves were not going to announce their plans ahead of time, right? That's the point. God is not an unrighteous thief, but like a thief, he will come one day when the sinners of this world are not expecting him. We come to verse 3, and Paul shifts the analogy. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So the image of a thief coming at night highlights the unexpectedness. The image of a pregnant woman highlights the inevitability. That's, That's what's supposed to happen. You cannot escape it. The coming of God's judgment will be a direct clash with the pride and the confidence of the ungodly. There is peace. There is security. Everything is fine. There's nothing to worry about. Peter describes that attitude. Second Peter 3, he says, this is what they say. Where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Psalm 10 gives us another description. It says, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. That's the spirit of our time. Whether it's naturalistic atheism, denies the existence of God, or apathetic religion denies the the holy judgment of God, they say there's nothing to worry about. Tomorrow is gonna be just like today. That's a phrase from the book of Isaiah, I think. But the day of the Lord will come regardless. When the time is right, sudden destruction will come and they will not escape. We don't know when it's coming, but we know that it is. There's a mystery in relation to the timing, but there, but, but, but there is a complete certainty. And the academic term for that is imminence, I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. Not to be confused with eminence or imminence. Imminence. The, the ungodly of this world are in imminent danger before a holy God. And so with that understanding of God's coming judgment, which could come at any time, the answer to the third question then should be obvious. How should you respond to the day of the Lord? How should we respond? What is the day of the Lord? It's a day of judgment. When is the day of the Lord? We don't know. How should you respond then? The answer is repentance and holiness. Repentance and holiness. That's where we're going to be unpacking in the weeks to come as Paul continues to tell the church, here's how you should live in light of that coming day. You cannot go on living in the sin of this world. The cost is too high. Our response should be repentance. Unless God takes pity on your sinful soul, you will go suddenly one day to judgment. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God, this is the Lord that we serve. The world pushes him away. The world loves the images of of a tender Christ, and so should we. But rejects the images of a holy God. The God who, who made you sees into every aspect of your life. He sees what you do. He hears what you say. He knows all your thoughts. And he's a God of vengeance and judgment. You don't hear that in the world today because it's something the culture completely pushes out. We don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about another God we serve. I get to do what I want. And don't tell me that there's going to be consequences. This past week I saw body cam footage from a police officer in Illinois. And in the footage, the officer is seated at a chair speaking with a a 24-year-old woman she was laying, sitting in a hospital, actually, after she had been detained for driving under the influence. 
she was speeding. She crashed into another car. When officers showed up, she had slurred speech. They found in her car an open bottle of vodka. They found marijuana. But in the accident, she killed the man and the woman who were in the other car. So in the body cam footage, the woman looks at the officer and says, I have school tomorrow. How do I get my car back? And the officer tells her, your car is totaled. You killed two people. You're not going to school tomorrow. And the woman responds, okay, but can I get it on Tuesday? Because I have night school. And the officer says to her, do you not understand what I told you? You killed two people. And the woman just nods, yeah, yeah, I'm just wondering when I can go to school. It appears she's still under the influence, but nonetheless, in that moment, her heart is exposed. Her response was pure selfishness. She has no concern for what she's done. She has no concern for what the consequences would be. That is the spirit of our age. Just do what you want. Nobody cares. Don't let anybody stop you. There will be no consequences. And that is the lie from Satan himself. Listen to what God told his people back in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. You want to study something this week? Look up a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's taken from that verse, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Their foot shall slip. He's focused. He's talking to religious people who had been so steeped in their religion. They said, we're fine, we're good, and weren't aware of the judgment that awaits them if they don't turn from the heart to God. You may not think anything is wrong, but sudden disaster will come upon you. Again, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. The the title alone would, would offend the culture today. But judgment is coming. So how do you escape it? There's only one way to escape it. You call out for mercy because he offers it to us in Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be saved and God offers it to us. He's offering it to you today. The holy and righteous God of all creation, the God who judges, the God who punishes has also lovingly provided a way of salvation through the death and the resurrection of his son who paid the price for sinners. That's the heart of the gospel. Christ, who will come with all his angels in a a flame of fire, also came in love and humility to ransom sinners. He's the judge of the world, but he's also the savior of all who call out to him. And so you need to yourself call out for forgiveness. That's what the tax collector, he just beat his breath. He didn't have any, all the theology, he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what you do. You beg God to save you, not because you deserve it, but because he's loving and gracious and merciful. And like Psalm 51 said, he's near to the brokenhearted. In the patience of God, we get to be here today to hear his message. 
but we're not guaranteed another day. Ever since the beginning of the church, God's message has not changed. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he said to all the religious people there, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He knew judgment was coming. And he knew the only way they would escape the wrath of God was by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's what we as a church celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. That's what we celebrate when we sing songs. That's what we celebrate when someone's baptized. God has mercifully washed a sinner. So if you call yourself a Christian, if you assume, well, when Christ comes, everything's gonna be fine, you need to make sure. That's what, that's what Paul told the Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Look at the character. Look at the pattern of your life and see if it lines up with the character of God. So that's what we'll be doing as we continue chapter five in the first Thessalonians in the weeks to come. Let me go simply by reading from Joel again, chapter two. They're beautiful passages because, again, Joel is focused on destruction and death. You see God's terrifying warning. But even in that, Joel speaks of God's mercy and kindness. So Joel 2, verse 12 says, Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning and rend or tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. And then verse 32 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, O oh God. We pray you would rescue us from our own sinfulness, from our own blind spots. We pray you would work in the hearts of those here and those outside here whom we know and love that are headed for judgment, that are what we used to be, children of wrath. Father, we pray you are merciful and gracious. Give us urgency to proclaim your message and give us the wisdom to search our own hearts and to live in light of that final day. You are a holy, righteous God, but you're also kind and gracious. What greater king, what greater Lord could we serve? Enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.